Have you ever wondered what sets apart companies at scale right from startup from those who don't? Well, the Genius at Scale podcast is here to answer that question. I interview CEOs from scaling companies and explore the counterintuitive practices that help them grow in ways that other companies don't. We'll also explore the biggest mistakes that almost wrecked them. Hi, I'm John Hitler. I'm a nine-time company founder and CEO. Now I coach CEOs in scaling companies. We'll be joined by these visionary leaders who've defied convention, challenged the status quo, and redefined the very essence of scaling. This is Genius at Scale. Hello and welcome back to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Richard Potter from Peak AI. Richard, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. So I am one of the co-founders and the CEO of a business called Peak. We're an AI platform, uh, specifically an AI application platform that different businesses, particularly retailers, manufacturing businesses, um, B2B businesses use to optimize key business processes uh, using artificial intelligence and at scale. Uh, so, for example, you will find us in a lot of retailers and, uh, and branded com- companies that you'll know uh, using our software to optimize their inventories, optimize their pricing processes, optimizing how they distribute and sell their products. Um, we think it's a really hot space, a really uh, next generation software business that we're building um, and one that's going to be very important to the world in the future. So fascinating. Does it, how much does it touch the customer or is it more about um, logistics? Actually, both, because uh, the thing that unites almost all of our customers is that they are managing physical product inventories. That's why we have you know, retail customers, manufacturing customers, B2B, uh, wholesale customers. Uh, and that inventory they're holding at risk, if you, if you think about it, they speculatively accumulate that and sell it. So in order to make a profit, they have to be great at, first of all, procuring the right amounts of product, putting it in the right place at the right time, always having enough of it so they always uh, make a sale, never miss a sale, they're not overstocked or or whatever. Uh, But in dealing with your inventory situation, you've got to be great at pricing it, you've got to be good at sourcing it, you've got to be good at distributing it, you've also got to be really good at selling it. And the vision for Peak is that we become uh, the the de facto AI platform that houses every company's AI that's running those uh, processes and then optimizes the decision-making in those businesses uh, for profit and growth. Uh, so absolutely, like we, our software touches the end consumer a lot because what you end up, uh, if you like, touching as a customer could be a product recommendation, it could be an offer, it could be a price, or even just the product itself. Uh, but equally, of course, um, the day-to-day users of our software is the business teams and our customers, uh, companies who are, who are running all those processes and managing their own business. Wow. So... AI today is different than AI maybe when you started. I'm talking how you, how you got there because three years ago it was the Stone Age in AI. <laughs> We're definitely um, in the hype cycle with artificial intelligence, aren't we? Which is fantastic for us. I mean, we actually we started quite a while ago. We we got our seed funding in 2016, um, and the vision for Peak then is the vision for Peak now. You know, companies who use data use data well, particularly use data to automate and optimize processes using machine learning and AI, are going to be the ones that win in the future. And that was always our vision. Uh, it's taken us quite a few years to reach sort of scale, the scale that we are now with a, a fully rounded out like platform that represents the vision we have for the company. And uh, and then all of a sudden all 
comes along generative AI, you know, the traditional apps that sit on the peak platform are what we would now call predictive AI applications. And Gen AI comes along and creates a, a really, you know, a huge, a huge wave of optimism for the technology and puts it right into the public consciousness, um, which has been really, really great for us. And of course, we're embedding a lot of Gen AI technologies into our platform too, and fusing that predictive AI with generative AI, and it's offered us another innovation wave in itself. Um, but yeah, I think we got there first, um, but a you know, first mover advantage is not um, relevant if you don't take advantage of it yourself. So our goal is to, maybe as Peter Thiel said, you know, the last mover advantage is the important one here. Um, and we think if, if we've got the right product in the right place at the right time, uh, we're going to have a really busy and successful few years ahead. So you're, you for about eight years, obviously you've scaled, which is fabulous. Walk me through the peaks and the, the plateaus and, and your scaling journey, if you would. Yeah, well, we've had, I would say we've had two sort of waves of scale. Um, and and I would say we're actually in the early stages of the second one almost, if that, if that makes sense. So the inception of peak was a really simple idea it was simple when you look back on it now which was exactly what i said you know companies that harness data well and make great decisions because of that are going to be more successful than ones that don't um, and it was amazing to me and my co-founders that more companies didn't do that back when we started the business so we started to explore the barriers like what what are the barriers to this why do companies not do it and there's lots of barriers right there's cultural ones skills gaps technology and a bunch of other stuff and back then you know cloud data warehouses and data lakes and so on they weren't really i think even so data maturity in itself and even a transition to the cloud has moved on a lot since we started peak and we were having to convince people that you know run your business using our ai in the cloud yet lots of companies were too scared just to put their data in the cloud or key business applications so we were a little bit ahead of time there but the first sort of i would say like that first catalyst came from you know early adopters before AI had crossed the chasm in most businesses, right? And the people who were buying at that point in time in the industry cycle, those early adopters are buying on promise and hope and excitement and so on. And I think of them as the folks who go and we were just before the show started recording, we were talking about the Super Bowl to think of like those football fans or soccer fans who are, who are going out and buying a 3D TV before the big game like because they think it's going to be the next big thing and then a few years down the line like no one's got 3D TVs um, so we got this huge boost this early boost from people who were just like oh AI cool how does that work 9 out of 10 people didn't want to buy didn't want to hear it but the one out of ten, it was very easy to sell to them because they just got hooked on the on the vision and the promise. Then what's happened over time is that you know your your early adopters have dried up in a sense. We've gone mainstream and now we've crossed the chasm. I would say mainstream buyers want you know something else. They're it's a fully rounded product offering they want. They're going to compare you to lots of different companies and they have really different buying processes and um, and practices. So while we will have some visionary customers who buy from us still, the the mainstream wants something different. And where we're at as a company now is we we like I said before we feel like we've got a fully rounded out product, uh, and the vision for Peak is manifest in it, and and it does exactly what it needs to do to make our customers successful. So we're now getting this second wave of uh, of scaling and growth, which is I guess um, bedrocked on. Um, 
a much stronger product foundation, uh, a real market demand that is there because AI has gone mainstream, and then our own ability to execute on that is much stronger than it ever has been. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been uh, been interesting so far. And then I think this second, like if you like, growth wave and acceleration wave that we're on right now, is going to be the one that hopefully sees us win the whole category. So, yeah, let's see. So, is the is the second wave the nine and ten that weren't the early adopters that? are now fearful that they could fall behind. And so you're calling mainstream. Is that is the market coming to you now? Yeah, I, absolutely. We've seen a lot of market pull. And I think if we're, if we're thinking about chasm theory and, you know, Jeffrey Moore's um, yep. writing in this case, what he would say is once it's crossed the chasm, you've still got, like, you're past the early adopter wave, but you're into the early majority. So the early majority are still taking a bit of a bet. They're still focused on growth, opportunity, and future. They're not buying for negative reasons. They're not buying because of FOMO, and they're not buying because they think that, like, oh, my God, my competitor's done it. I've got to catch up. They are still buying for opportunity. So, therefore, we are still selling on that opportunity, selling on that value, um, and selling on excitement. Um, That would naturally change as an industry matures and a category gets well-established and you know, at some point in the future, you're not going to be able to run a company at scale without an AI platform and without an AI that helps you do it. Um, for a lot of companies, that reality might be 10 years away. For our customers, it's here and it right, right now in front of them. Right. And that's that's just because re- retail moves so fast? Well, yeah. I mean, so from a retail perspective, retail has moved a bit quicker than, you know, your sort of B2B and sort of manufacturing yeah. uh, companies but now those are the ones that are moving quickly too retail move faster actually just because it's a really great place to apply artificial intelligence i mean you have a lot of data you typically have this fast response mechanism you know so it's a high transaction business um and it's also complex and it's been getting more and more complicated because you know we have um omnichannel businesses that are selling online in store um, and you have complex logistics and supply chain models to try and optimize too and it's just way more complicated than like spreadsheets and traditional systems can handle so the fact that you have the data you can make the money there's processes to optimize and a lot of those businesses are fairly digital savvy because they've had to open a digital storefront has meant that retail has been slightly ahead of other businesses and other industries um, whereas now those other ones are catching up so you know I think we'll see we'll see it as a trend across all sectors but particularly those ones that are data rich and have this fast response mechanism you know like I change this thing I optimize this process I start to monetize and uh, not all businesses are like that yeah so you're a co-founder multiple co-founders mm-hmm. or just two there's three of us actually three of us which I think is a good number uh slightly biased by my own experience but yeah we have me I'm a little bit more commercial I also was an analyst back in the day and I understand data so um, you know I have that side of me that brings those skills at all who's our CTO is the technical co-founder and the data and tech brain behind the peak platform particularly um, as we built it originally before we extended a lot of the AI components on top so you've sort of got commercial technical and then Dave who's the third co-founder he's now our CIO but in the past was our um, chief operating officer basically he gets everything done so you've kind of got an ideas guy a tech guy <laughs> and then the guy who makes everyone do stuff and get get it done and that works really well as a that has worked really well as a trio over the years it, i'm i'm fascinated with um how has the scaling of either the leadership team or especially 
the CEO role led, mirrored, or lagged behind the scaling of the company? Well, that is a very, very interesting question. So I would say it led the company early. So one of the big um, big things we got right in the early days is I, I actually invested in a sort of management team first, which isn't necessarily you know a commonly held uh, belief. Uh, a lot of founders try to do everything themselves. I I always think that you know I don't want to become the bottleneck and and I'm fairly sure there are a lot of people out there who are smarter than me. So we realized we we figured out the type of business we wanted to be we hired very smart generalists who became like almost like extra co-founders if you like but we clearly segmented the responsibilities across the business and that allowed us to scale much faster and we had this high trust it was this is obviously pre-covid so we were working in the office together every day five days a week um so you could move really quickly share information fast and that allowed us to scale through at least the first million arr first couple of million arr very very quickly um and built and, and have this really tight uh, connection between every everything that everyone was doing across all the teams we drifted for sure actually when we went through massive scale so if we fast forward from that point to like our last funding round which was in 2021 that was a series C round that SoftBank led it was a big round for us and um, and that was just before the tech crash happened actually so back into 21 obviously the technology crash happened in April May 22 so we spent a lot of time back end of 21 early 22 scaling the whole business and we hired more than 100 people in the Q1 of 22 and um, and what I would say is that the I didn't and I didn't recognize this you know this is a commonly held belief and I disagreed with it and was probably wrong that you know as SaaS businesses scale sort of exponentially um, individuals generally only have the ability to grow sort of incrementally and often like can go horizontal when you reach a certain scale and that's not to mean that they're not good at their job or they're the wrong you know they're, they're a bad person or they've stopped trying or something like that but the role gets exponentially more complicated while we're sort of growing sort of more slowly as an individual I always thought like well if a founder can do it why can't everybody else and i think what we've seen over the years is some key people well who are very key people to peak have managed to scale exponentially but not everybody has and me getting the balance right of where do i bring in talent who has been on that journey and knows what it looks like and get can get us from this point to this point and get that team in ahead of time versus being reactive to us falling behind so i'd say early on we really nailed it and we were ahead of the scale um, we scaled so successfully and quickly that we then fell behind and now I've gone through a period of sort of rebuild um, which is a combination of just recognizing that we needed to improve as a leadership team um, but then equally also deal with the technology downturn which has resulted in us rethinking how we operate restructuring the business to a certain extent and then alongside that mapping the exact roles to that again in a much you know clearer way with um strong accountability for each business area and, and now i'd say you know we're ahead of the curve again so uh, i'm fascinated with this this especially the the human dynamic because you're right human beings generally can't take those huge huge leaps how have the either the core values or the founding values changed or evolved from three co-founders in a garage to 
uh, what, you're 500 people now or something like that? I mean, how, can you use the same ones? Yeah, we do. We do, actually. We lost one, uh, funnily enough. We started off with something I'm really proud of. I think we have a really authentic culture at Peak. Um, we have this dual mission, right? The first part of our mission is to democratize artificial intelligence so that all businesses can take advantage of the benefits it will bring them. Yep. The second is to build a company that everyone loves being part of. And we don't just mean like our staff and our team. We also mean like all stakeholders, right? Customers should love it, shareholders, other st- you know, people around us, our friends, our families, the community as well. Um, but obviously, first and foremost, we do mean our team because we spend most most of our time at work, and we want to we want to enjoy our time at work. And we've written that into our mission statement. That's never changed. And then we took the time, Dave and myself, actually, before we'd even incorporated the company, to write down exactly what we thought great looked like. What does a great company look like? What's what's a, what is a great company culture? It was like a fairly verbose paragraph but in that we teased out six key values um and those six values then um went on to define everything that we built and as we scaled we turned like individual values into values and behaviors over the years we added on principles because we found that we were operating to certain unwritten rules that we hadn't that weren't values they were just things we did like aim for great not good um or always starting with the end in mind if you're solving a problem and stuff like that they're not values they're you know their principles as to where you approach things so we've got this strongly codified culture that that's got the mission the vision um of the company it then goes into the principles the values and, and what we're here to do and and it hasn't changed the only thing that happened is that we, two of our original six values were pretty similar so we combined them into one made it a bit easier easier for people to remember five than six uh so yeah but generally speaking it hasn't changed one thing that happened though over time this is really interesting we scaled very well particularly on that first wave with a really true and authentic culture then when we went through this sort of hyperscale period um that i described uh sort of early 2022 and then through 22 we 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 stopped delivering on our mission from a cultural perspective and i've talked to the business a lot about this our culture drifted and the culture drifted because one of our principles is that we aim for sustainable high performance. So for me, it's not okay to burn people out and treat people as like human capital. We're not trying to be one of those startups. What we're trying to be is a business that you can be part of for a long, long time and that we we win. We do the things we're going to say we're going to do and we're successful Um but it's sustainable and we don't so you know we don't want to burn out we don't want to have to give up and 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 all of those kinds of things actually what happened is we over indexed on the sustainable and under indexed on the high performance and you know if you look back now at the tech crash maybe some of this is macro driven we had a difficult year in 2022 and i attribute that to a bit of culture drift there's a lot of newness in the business or a lot of um uh, sort of short tenured uh, colleagues and it takes time to like assimilate to get up to speed to learn a business to learn its culture its values and so on and that caused a bit of drift and and now we've we're through that now for sure we've got it back um so i would say that while we've had our culture well codified communicated recruited to rewarded to like it's not like being perfect the whole way we've learned along the way that you've got to do more than just repeat 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 you you know you've always got to check that you are delivering what you say you're going to do what what did that look like complacency when you drifted a little no not complacency 
but a disconnect I would say a disconnect between say if the founders are the effect, effectively the guy you know the the spirit animals in the in setting a culture in a startup you know then the exec team are the the, the closest thing culture starts from the top right but then the business got bigger with leaders leading leaders leading leaders and I would say the team on the ground that grew so fast and some middle managers who were either newly hired or first time leaders there was a disconnect between how you deliver the culture that we wanted here and we'd always set and what was actually happening on the ground and the best way I would characterize that is when you've got a business that's got this dual purpose like peak you know we've got a business goal and then we've got a goal for ourselves which is creating a business that we all love being part of the thing that people can resonate with the most early in their tenure is the second part like do I like this place? And it went from being a business where people took responsibility for the culture and saw it as their own business that, that they shaped the culture to one where the culture happens to me. I'm a recipient of the culture. And that's not the case here at Peak, you know. Um, driven and responsible are two of our values. And a big part of that is that we've got the drive to do a great job all the time, but we take responsibility for it. We also take responsibility for the culture. And the way in which we've corrected it is obviously a lot of our leaders now have got more experience we've also recruited in people with more experience and we've just really tried to foster a much stronger connection top to bottom and make sure there's a consistently delivered um, experience for everybody but it's also been really made clear to everyone that we all contribute to the peak culture the peak culture isn't something that you experience and you're a recipient of it's something you contribute right. to and you create for others um yeah, I think that's just one of the pitfalls of scaling that fast. Um, and I often wonder when I see a lot of, you know, tech companies scale really quick, you know, doubling in size from, let's just say, 5,000 to 10,000 employees in a, a couple of years, how they how they avoid that drift. You know, when we, we saw that drift between, you know, two and 300 employees now. Uh, we're much more efficient and we're running leaner actually so we're back down to sort of two, 200, 250 in our team um, it's hard it's hard when you're adding that much newness into a business to, to yeah. be culturally pure yeah my largest client in COVID was adding 2,200 employees a year I was like how do you, wow. how do you even find them um, and, 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 that, and they would be remote right as well if it's during COVID uh, so they were, even they, harder even harder to bring even, it all together yeah they had very ingenious systems one of which was um they couldn't have hr review uh, if you figure you get 50 resumes electronically for every every that's a hundred hundred and ten thousand applications they've got to deal with and you can't just ignore them. so what they did was they get an no. auto response that said oh richard we're glad you applied first step please do a 90 second video nothing fancy it can be on your phone you don't have to get dressed for it and pick any of these four topics and and address it. And what they did was they brought in high schoolers and community college kids and developed a four-credit psychology course. And their job was to watch these videos. But what they did was they said, you have to watch them with the sound off. Because what they realized is people can con wow. you if they speak. And, and so if they watch you and you look like you're on drugs... Uh, the other thing is they said we can only handle one of seven so every block of seven you can only pass one of the seven so they'd watch seven without the video and the obvious as they called them crazies 
They never even turned on the sound. They just say out and it would get an auto response saying, thanks for applying the one, but they only do one in seven just to get it down. And I thought this is brilliant. And what happened is that 30 seconds, they could turn the, if they thought you were a decent candidate, like you look good on, then they could turn the sound on. If you were still introducing your 53 cats from your cat collection or explaining why you love um, high powered rifles in your garage, then they'd say that guy's out. He once they heard you speak. It was, a, it was a brilliant system. And I thought, because they're all about optimizing. And I thought, yeah, how would you hire? How would you hire, find, recruit? Who would you even know to interview of? of? And they brought these people yeah. on and they uh, the cultural fit was pretty darn good. And I thought, hmm, but they had to invent that. And I thought, uh, very, very mm-hmm. creative CEO. And he was the one who said, we've got to yeah. solve this not through HR practices because HR practices are linear and compliant. And he said, we, we can't do linear and compliant. We've got to bring on these people and they've got to be really, really good. It helped that they were the fourth, fourth highest paying country in the United States for, um, okay. yeah. So that helped because people wanted to work there, but they had no, they had no interest in building, um, a feel good. It was all about, we got, we got crap to do. If you come here, you'll love it, but you're, you're going to work and you're going to, you're going to love it because mm-hmm. you like the work. You're not going to love it because we're going to pamper you. So that's, they built it even in their hiring, and it was fascinating. I, uh, so, oh, well, there's lots that's of different really ways cool, to do it, I guess. Yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, yeah. Well, at that sort of scale, fascinating. And even that first filter of getting the reply and asking for the video is, uh, you know, it, it is a gate, right? Which they, helps they, filter people out. Do you really want the job? Yeah. They didn't start with that, but they had to, they had to get people that wanted to be there and, and the pay was enticing. So that was the problem. They were getting lots of people saying, wow, this is the highest one I found. I want that one. And they were terrible fits because they, they wanted a country club, not, not a, a compelling uh, mission. So I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea of what I would call unteachable talents that actually scale. Because there's some unteachable talents, you know, perfect pitch. That's great. You can sing, but that's not going to help you scale curious if now that you've done this if there were t- unteachable talents that you wish you had in the co-founder group that would have helped you scale well uh, yeah i mean let me think about that so i think so in the co-founder group we had a really good like set of complementary skills there which, that's helpful uh, you know and a na- natural go-to's which i think was one of our reasons for success and i often do say to people you know don't go it alone do have a co-founder at least one preferably two for that reason because there's just a lot more to fall back on and and you can help each other through i think the thing that i wish maybe we had as we've approached certain scales so i'm thinking about the things that we've had to relearn like learn and then rebuild was we were we were very strong at selling in the early days and i think you would characterize it as i mean we're an enterprise software company right so it's um relatively large um acvs and you know important customers and oh well all customers are important but you know what i mean like it's it's fewer transactions but a bigger deals basically and I think we were quite strong at founder-led sales. I was more commercially leaning uh, out of the three of us. So in the early days, a lot of why we were successful was sort of like, we didn't really know why, because I don't necessarily overanalyze things. I think 
more you know this should work let's try it let's do it let's go let's go next 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 and we go and we be successful and we keep we keep winning um now i think we made two errors when we were trying to go from founder-led sales as a software company to like you know product-led sales let's just say the first was we maybe questioned a little bit too much the things that we were good at when we shouldn't have done so i think about we've gone through learnings of our commercial model we changed it and we changed it and now and we've changed it we've changed it and it's 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 actually today very similar to what it was four or five years ago when we were when we were early stages of growing really fast and i think what that was was there maybe an instinct that we couldn't quite quantify and we hadn't analyzed to death but we had a commercial model that our customers liked and it worked really well and it was at the right price point and it, it, everything tied together but we just knew that because we got it and it was in our guts but we hadn't like you know we hadn't we didn't proven have it. loads of data to prove it yeah. basically we just got it right first time and now we've gone back through and tried a few different things and we've come back to something that looks very similar i would have lo- i would love to have been able to have the experience to trust my gut a little bit more as we scaled and said right no i've done this before i've scaled these companies before um don't change these things don't change the things that are working change the things that aren't working and keep going and build on those and i think if i had had that experience that would have been really beneficial and then the second thing is that we're at a certain size and scale now where it makes a difference to like just have really great operators if you listen to like frank slootman who says like you know being operationally excellent can be a strategic advantage because so many companies are not operationally excellent uh, and I think he, and I and I now would see that he is totally correct when you're t- when you're really trying to scale to in a big way you've just got to be on it with everything all the time and every detail is really important that takes a certain like mindset it takes a certain mindset it also takes like a certain experience as well you kind of can't teach that you have to have gone through the mill even like frank slootman's a really good example if you listen to his um biography or his books he's had many management roles before he becomes ceo so he's and he's progressed through being the operator archetype i think that you a can't teach it and b really really need it and so if i look at our founder group we love the newness we love the excitement we're the founders this is the mission like the mission excites us and then establishing a really strong operational um capability um is something that i kind of wish we had in that founder group in that sense but we didn't and and we do now and i will look to harness more of that in the future but i actually think interestingly i've seen a lot of startups kind of hit the buffers when they've been too operationally focused early on you you know you need to invent you need your moment right. of um you, of creation and then and then optimizing from that invention onwards if you really want to scale as a software company um so you need both really i guess um and and at different points in time different things become more important but i would say that like that drive that operational drive if we had that earlier on in our exec team that would have uh, made a big difference yeah that's it's it's funny when you're a band of brothers yeah just, like you say you have to do everything oh, how do you, yeah how do you do it how do you check yourself yeah that's a hard thing uh yeah going with oh, your yeah. gut is and also it, it's interesting the the other thing it leads to is like sometimes you don't hold people to account 
um, brilliantly. Like, and I would say this is something I'm guilty of. I uh, have been guilty of as a CEO because everything is best endeavors. You know, when you're the, the the band of brothers, the ones who are starting it, like it goes wrong sometimes, and you don't really get you don't shout at each other if it goes wrong. You just try and fix it and move on. And like, but when you scale and you're trying to build this an operation that is scalable. You know, you do actually need a strong culture of accountability and hold hold each other to account, and uh, because otherwise it sort of collapses. And I th- and I think you, you know, founders can be quite bad at, at that, to be honest. And I would, and I think we would hold our hands up and say we were. Yeah, that's um, the unteachable pieces. Is uh, it's actually the focus of my my next book. It's I'm convinced there are probably a handful, maybe six, but I don't I don't know necessarily. And founders and CEOs know what they are because they have to do everything. And then where the gaps show up, they say, boy, it sure would have been good to trust my gut. That's an amazing one because usually yeah. uh, there's a lot of studies on your gut is more, even without data, your gut is more accurate than all the analysis and all yeah. the data usually. Because you know, uh, at least you you have well, a... It- and I, I think that gut, gut instinct is a data-driven decision. It's just we're not articulating the data. We just feel it because we've seen it, right. and we're, we are synthesizing data, and we're dealing with we're dealing in the gray, not dealing in black and white. And so you can over-index and try to look for perfect answers all the time, but sometimes you have to trust your gut, right? So, yeah, um, you, you talked about um, uh, challenges. I'm curious, what's been fun about? Uh, I mean. To, Obviously, you, you you have to solve problems, and there's challenges every day, and yeah, uh, you because know, people talk about like it's a like it's a fight or a war, but I'm sure there's been fun things too. What what have you really enjoyed about about scaling, uh, Pete? Well, now now that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, let's just say from a technology downturn point of view, I don't think we're totally out of the woods as a sector yet, but we're getting there. Um, we start to feel more optimistic again. So that helps you think about the good things more uh, than the bad things. But I mean, there's just so many good things specific to Peak. You know, we set out to do two things. We've got some of the world's biggest brands and companies like Nike and Ralph Lauren using our software day to day in like very important decision making. And we were ahead of our time and we hope to stay ahead of our time. And that is an immense source of pride to see our software being used by um, by, by some of the world's best businesses it's really cool and then the other thing that's really again specific to Peak is that other side of the mission I mentioned like building a business we all love to be love being part of it's fantastic to come to work every day with really talented smart people who make you laugh who like are fun to be around who are you know energy givers not energy takers and all the things that we would want a Peak person to be and um, yeah I those things are the fun things and you have certain results right a particular renewal that you really wanted to get done with a customer or a new logo or a funding event or you know even when it comes to certain company celebrations and those things you look back on um as being being highlights but you know it's a lot of fun and you get up in the morning and come to work um because you love it if you didn't love it you wouldn't do it i think so we, yeah, I'd say we have more fun than we do uh, hard times. That's that's great. What should I have asked you about scale that I didn't? Or scaling? Uh, I think it, this, this might be more specific to artificial intelligence companies like us than they are broader learnings. But 
a lot of people fail to get the unit economics of AI companies um, working in the same way that they do for traditional SaaS businesses, should we say. Uh, and, and there's lots of reasons for that, but the main reason is heavy compute, the need for data, um, and then the lack of expertise on end customer side, the need to have them all on your side, and then just like the the, 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 the nuances of, of AI first software, the need to stay on top of models, retrain them, blah, blah, blah all this kind of stuff. Um, so I think one question could have been like, you know, we've scaled with really strong SaaS unit economics as an AI first company, and how have we managed to do that? versus a lot of companies who've not managed to do that. And there's a few things that, that we've pulled off that have got us to this position. Some of them are really straightforward, like business school things, like natural competitive advantages. Like I'm here in Manchester in the UK. My co-founder Atul is in Jaipur in India, and we have two uh, big R&D offices in India. And we do a lot of our data science and AI engineering here in Manchester. So if you compare us to a Silicon Valley startup, you know, first of all, like our cost base is for the same number of resources, for the same talent, is orders of magnitude different. And that helps massively. Uh, so basic stuff like that in a funny sort of way. Uh, all the way through just having an obsession with like trying to turn everything that you could do as a science project, as a data scientist, into software um, to make the business more and more and more scalable. Um, that's how we've pulled that off. But um, yeah, that's a little bit more specific to an AI company vis-a-vis um, -vis, like general advice. Uh, but maybe the general learnings are, you know, if you have natural, say, I would say structural advantages like we do in the in from a cost-based perspective think about how you can really take advantage of those in a way that gives you something extra that helps you like escape your competition and we have for our scale and uh, you know twice the twice the number of people that you would have if you were based on the west coast of the united states and our cost you know per head cost base will be yeah probably like a fifth or a sixth uh, on average, so the, the and these these sort of things can be real meaningful things as you're looking to get acceleration and, and win a market, right? So you don't need to you don't need to to raise seven trillion like Sam Altman. You just need you just need like <laughs> like two trillion or maybe two and a half trillion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm hoping that I can take advantage of some of we can take advantage of some of his fundraising <laughs> by embedding uh, open AI technology into Peak. <laughs> I've had I've. I've done a couple of forums already about this and the insane thing is not that he's asking for seven trillion the insane thing is he'll probably get it that's that's just absolutely mind-boggling that he could uh make that yeah. uh request and probably figure it out and get it and go so oh well well it's a funny one isn't it because if it's a and i think this is the problem it's a little bit like the internet's open and that's why technology's done so well since the dawn of um, the, the internet era um, the danger we've got with AI if AI is a platform shift from the internet to the next platform we need to make sure that AI is that AI platform is open um, which poses a lot of risks which people are rightly paying attention right. to do those risks uh, outweigh the other risks of making it a closed platform and having the imagine the internet was closed and we only had one internet provider for the whole of the world I think I know which one I would prefer. And yeah. therefore, we have to make sure that, um, you know, while it does cost a lot of money um, to invest in the foundational layer, we can't just have it that, you know, four, three, four, five companies right. um, 
who are the biggest companies already with so yeah. much cash are the ones that are being the kingmakers and saying like you know you you and you you're going to run the future internet that's um pretty scary i think yes it is, it is. Yeah, fascinating discussion. Um, uh, I'd love to bring you back for another another session. There's a whole whole lot more, but uh, for now, to our uh, viewers, thank you for for joining us. And Richard, thank you for appearing today on Genius at Scale. All the best. Thanks for joining me on another powerful episode of Genius at Scale. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to continue your journey into the world of scaling, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review and let the world know how the insights of these amazing CEOs helped you. Also, if you're hungry to discover more counterintuitive strategies to scale your business, don't forget to grab a copy of my book, The Little Book of Big Scale, where I've compiled wisdom and insights from CEOs who have successfully scaled their companies against all odds. Or you can go to our website, www.evokinggenius.com backslash book. Thanks again for tuning in. Go forth and scale.